A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. The serious stuff starts in the Premier League on Wednesday. Then there's a full weekend programme. There'll be no crowds, there'll be no mascots, but there will be football, there will be drama. And there will be moments to remind us just what we've missed. So, Aid, what are you looking forward to most? Oh, so much, so much. Working at a game, for first and <laughs> foremost, which uh, which will uh, might seem strange at first. I have missed. I do love um, co-commentating at, at matches and uh, just analysing matches as you go on the hoof and sort of challenging yourself really it's something I really enjoy so so yeah personally speaking can't wait to to get behind the mic again and uh, and to to sort of talk listeners through matches I think it's the stories the narratives that games throw up really I mean I, I, I love that about football obviously you know you can talk about you've missed goals I'm looking forward to you know great skill but without matches you don't get that that evolving storyline that we all enjoy so much. And yeah, I cannot wait for it to start. It's going to be different and it may not be as good as it was with the crowds. And, and we've spoken about that at length, but providing the football is played at a good intensity, nice tempo, and that the players can sort of block out the fact that they're empty stadiums, then I think we'll be fine. And and I'm sure that we'll be entertained between now and the end of the campaign. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Yeah, as I suppose, you know, the challenge is, well, it is unprecedented. I was taken by a quote from Graham Lasso talking to Sid Lowe on about the whole behind closed doors scenario, really. And this quote really got to me. He said, look, playing in an empty stadium is disconcerting, almost physical. It's like the crowd has an energy you can feed off. Without the crowd, it's hollow and it can do strange things to good players. So I suppose, Seb, it is a multi-layered issue now, isn't it? You know, it's not just about having talent now. It's actually having to respond to a completely different atmosphere. Yeah, Mike. Also, having to maintain your concentration. 
I've been watching a lot of the Bundesliga. I watched uh, La Liga's uh, return over the weekend. Also watching Turkish football. Yeah, me um, too. I, did you see Cameron Jerome playing for yeah. Jos Tepe? Who knew that? <laughs> <laughs> I but knew what? it. I interviewed him a few a few months ago. Actually. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and he's loving it there. Yeah. So yeah. well. On, I mean, one of, one of the things that strikes me about these empty stadium games is that kind of the attacking players seem to have adjusted really well. Defensively, I've seen a lot of mistakes. I've seen a lot of strange mistakes. And I wonder whether that's kind of what Graham Lasso is getting at in that kind of the, your usual disciplines and the usual way in which like a crowd maybe focuses a player, like a centre-half or a goalkeeper. Maybe the absence of that is is helping to create these like sort of weird moments. I mean, I think I think I've seen more goalkeeping errors in the last ten days than you would normally in a couple of months, and really bad ones too. Really, really bad ones. There's one from um, the Hertha Berlin goalkeeper a few weeks ago, which you just I, I I cringed out of my kidneys watching it, Mike. It was <laughs> just awful. Like you just think, oh, that, that man's got a family. Um, yeah. And. <laughs> And they disowned I, I, him, mate. Well, I, I wonder whether there's a sharpness that comes from the crowd. Maybe that's not what Graham Lasso was getting at. But you wonder whether sort of maintaining perfect concentrate, full concentration over an hour and a half is difficult in any yeah, in any. I, in any I agree. Yes, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's definitely a thing. And, and it, it sharpens the mind, doesn't it? Because you know you're playing in front of X amount of people. All these eyes are on you. You've got to be on it. You've got to be at your sharpest. And when that goes, then it's all about self-motivation, isn't it? You've got to get yourself to the same level, even though the crowd aren't there. Personally, I was always much, much, not even, not not a small difference. I was much more nervous playing in front of fairly minuscule crowds compared to when it was a full stadium. It was just, I don't know what it was. I think it's the fact that you could probably hear everybody. <laughs> uh, you, could hear, you could hear your manager giving, giving you pelters as well, which normally you couldn't. So it's li- little, thing, little things like that that, that can, can throw you. And, and certain players as well undoubtedly buzz off the crowd, the, the, the extra yard, the mythical extra yard that they give you. It's not mythical in, in, cer- in certain player scenarios. They will miss it and it might give them a feeling of disorientation at, at first. But but look, these guys play full-on practice matches all the time and they're just going to have to, you know, t- treat it like that, aren't they, and, and be professional. But for some, I think we might I think we might get some strange performances for sure. Because I was watching Mainz against Augsburg yesterday. Honestly, one of the worst games of football I've ever seen and I, I haven't really been the same since because it was every every attacking decision that got made was bad pretty much. Like, the, the, if you were to produce a highlight reel of that match, it would just be one over hit cross after another. And it was it was staggeringly bad. It was kind of, these are professional players doing things that I would do in the park. And you wonder whether some of that, some of the players, particularly like players towards the bottom of the table, I know we're talking, with, you know, anyone playing in the Bundesliga is an exceptional footballer, I understand that. Maybe these are some of the margins that separate an excellent player from just a merely very good one because it was it was really hard to explain. Like players make bad decisions, but generally not time after time after time after time. So I wonder whether that's involved too here. Yeah, I I, I wonder whether or not you know there is an element because it's so ubiquitous, you know, Premier League football, you become used to the excellence. And I think probably, you know, in, in the in the lockdown period, especially when the Bundesliga's come back. And you know, initially without any crowd effects, you had to concentrate on the game, and you and you see things that probably were lost in the sort of swirl of action that we had when we took football for granted. Do, do you think 
uh, we might be we might see things and be, have a greater awareness of how good these guys are. I hope so. Yeah, I really do because they are exceptional players. And like you say, I, I agree. I do think it focuses your mind. That's one of the reasons that that, that I I like the idea of having having the option of, of crowd noise because it just it normalizes it and you can watch it a little bit more regularly when when you can hear them talking to one another. I think. To stop it feeling like a training game, you really do have to immerse yourself in what you're seeing. And and yeah, look, we, we might all learn a little bit more about players, about teams, about football in, in general. It's going to be interesting times, that is for sure. I do think that the more defensive teams, the ones with a clear sort of defensive structure, will be the ones that shine earlier on. Just, just because... That rustiness that's bound to be there will be negated by the fact that the, the, the habits are so ingrained in certain teams compared to others that they'll be able to settle in much quicker. I'm thinking of Sheffield United. Of course, they're, they're part of the opening nights. Every player there knows their job inside out. And it, it would only take a, you know, a few days training and they're straight back into it. For their opponents, Villa, for example, if you were to compare them, a team that has chopped and changed formations ever since John McGinn got injured, towards the end of December, then I think they need a bit more work. So, so it'd, be, it'd be fascinating to see if that is what we see or if we, if we see some surprises. Yeah, because it's, it's essentially what we're going into as a mini season, isn't it? You know, eight, nine matches. And a lot will depend on who hits the ground running. Uh, to, to take that Villa example, Seb, you know, their first up against Sheffield United, is their need probably greatest to actually you know go straight into their stride because if they lose that game there is a there there will be a negative momentum shift wouldn't there yeah but <clears throat> by the same token mike if they win that game then you get to set the tone of the relegation battle around you i mean that's one of the, one of the things i'm most looking forward to is is actually that relegation race because it is so tight it's so congested and individual games are going to affect not only the way the table looks but how other teams react to that. So if you're Bournemouth, if you're West Ham and Villa win that game, all of a sudden the pressure cranks right up on you. <clears throat> and also, I just, I, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I, I think under, under normal conditions, if this was the start of a new season, we used to at the beginning of the season, teams come out, come out at different speeds, don't they? So, and if you do, if you win, say, two, three games on the bounce, that is going to make a difference because you're not like, Teams at the bottom of the table and they're not going to be competing. They're not going to be winning 20 points, are they? Because most of these games, they're not going to take anything from or at best, they're going to be taking points. So if you were to take six, nine points, that is a world of difference. And for a team like Villa, who I think if they, I, I, think, I think confidence has been a big issue for especially that defence. And some of the sort of, if you look back at some of the goals conceded by them in sort of February, March, I mean, most obviously that Son Heung-min goal, that doesn't happen to a defence which feels good about itself. And so in the kind of the microcosm of a nine-game season, you get the opportunity to, to almost kind of restore how you feel about yourself. And there's no better way. If they, they win that game, then it's absolutely huge for their future. Yeah, I suppose in, in a sense, Sheffield United are probably their worst opposition in terms oh, of yeah. a, you know a collective threat, the organisation, the work ethic. You know, when I spoke to Chris Wilder a couple of weeks ago, you know, he's he'd spoken about how he's had his players in pods, usually of about three or four players with a with a member of his staff, 
you know, working since the start of lockdown. So they will be prepared, won't they, Aid? Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, Chris Wilder is, is a very good coach. I, I think the we, we, we might see with our own eyes who the, who the most effective coaches are as well because they've had relatively little time on the training ground. It's how those coaches have used that 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 time to get the players ready. I think that, that there will be a high level of skill factor in, in that. And and I would rate Chris Wilder as one of the best coaches in, in the division. So, yeah, so no, I think they've got a good chance. Very well organised, as I've outlined. They, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. I think this is a game that they I would fancy them to to win, actually, Sheffield United. But but they don't score many goals. And I think that is that is a problem. As we've seen across the leagues, there are a lot of goals. There are a lot of defensive errors going on. The pressure to keep clean sheets. I think they've only scored 30 goals this season, which is way down on everyone else around them in the sort of chase for top four. They have to be super solid at the back. And I look at their their running, actually, after Villa, and they've got some tough games. I think Leicester, Chelsea, Man United, Wolves, Spurs. I think they'll take points off those teams, but will they win those games? I'm not, I'm not so sure. But, but yeah, I th- you have to fancy them for this for this first one because it will take less for them to click straight back into gear than Villa, who I think had lost their... Identity. It was a four-three-three when they came up. It was all about Grealish playing in the middle with McGinn. That changed, and it's become a slight, slight mishmash. And and I'm not sure Villa know what they want to be at the moment. But they've got nine games, as as um, Seb outlined, to sort of reinvent themselves, haven't they? Mm. I suppose with with Sheffield United, Seb, we can look at it almost dispassionately and say, look, they're, they're already exceeding their natural limits. But that does beg the question, how far can they go? How far do you think this team can go? I, I wrote about this last week, Mike. I don't know because every at every level that this team reaches, there's an adjustment. They get better. So they have their kind of set piece with an open play and their kind of their mechanics that has sort of instructed their progress to this point. Use of wing backs, overlapping centre halves. The kind of the midfield that cross that Ollie Norwood plays from kind of the shallow rights and, and and set pieces things like that. So you you think it's limited, but in reality, these players grow to towards the sun in effect. And I think your answer to your question is I don't know, but I want to find out. So I want to see what a you know what I suppose it's like if you if if a Sheffield United team if this Sheffield United team qualified for say the Europa League then that's another little thing on their kind of footballing passport, their, their footballing CV. It's another experience. And I want to see how some of these players react to it. I mean, the other the other factor is you qualify for European competition, then, you know, you access revenue streams, which allow you to nourish your side and, you know, to, to develop a, you know, a squad. I think they're as good as, at the moment, in terms of how they function, they're as good as any team in that, in that top five race. Um, not Seb, on, on if, if, if Seb, they had Jamie Vardy up front, yeah, yeah, or someone of his standard, I think, I think they would be top four. I do really you know do. You, you, I, I, I think that's the difference. They need a score. They need a goal scorer. They need a quickie that can that can score those goals yeah, on the breaks. Yeah, they need yeah. someone lethal, and and then you've almost got Leicester from when they won the title. Almost, it's not the same. Of course, it's not. But in terms of the structure, everyone knowing what they're doing. The, the team framework is, isn't far off what Leicester had, but they are missing that little bit of X factor, aren't they, just in the, inside, the, inside the opposition box, I guess. 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the statistic that it tells everything about what Sheffield United are. They have conceded the second fewest goals in the whole of the Premier League and only Liverpool can better that. The difference being that Liverpool have a £75 million Virgil van Dijk. And I think that Sheffield United defence, wing-backs included, and the goalkeeper was put together cumulatively for £6 million. Like, I think I think Egan cost four and a half, something like that. Basham was free. Both, both, both wing-backs were free. Goalkeepers on loan. It's an amazing achievement. To put that together... You know, because how often do you see it? You, the teams come up and through sort of September, October, you know, they, they 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 function well because they're almost playing off adrenaline. And then they take an absolute battering somewhere and then all the confidence drains away. That's never happened to Sheffield United. So all these structures that Chris Wilde's put in place and Alan, Alan Neal as well, because Alan Neal probably doesn't get mentioned enough for his effect on that team. They've, they've withstood everything the league has to offer. And also, they've come pretty close to knocking off... I mean, do you remember that, that Liverpool game at Bramall Road? Mm-hmm. Bramall Lane, sorry. Like, it was... it was that The goalkeeping mistake aside, I mean, that could have gone either way. And that's one of the best performances I've seen against Liverpool. Yeah, and they, they, they had the Bramall Lane crowd right behind them, and that makes a difference. But you saw how well they functioned. I mean, they're, they're one of... As a, as a neutral, I would, I would desperately love them to sort of... to, to upend everybody else and uh, sneak into the Champions League place I, because so many people would hate it. Can you imagine some of the pundits with, with um, you know, uh, blustering on about, oh, they're just a direct side and, you know, they're from, you know, they're from Sheffield. So they're probably just, they're probably playing with like nine target men and it's just nonsense. But <laughs> they would have to confront this body of work, which is just so, so impressive. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. The other, the other midweek game, Arsenal at Manchester City. Now, Aid. It seems that defensive problems have already been exposed in your friendlies. Okay, we'll take those with a pinch of salt, perhaps. Oh, not my friendlies, Mike. You know, I'm just an observer. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Right. But listen, <laughs> I think you, you know this could be a wake-up call, couldn't it? And I suppose then that forces to look at what does success look like to Arteta for the rest of the season. What what should he realistically expect from that team? Uh, success will be to get to fifth. I think from where they are. Uh, Look at the form tables leading up to the pandemic. The six-game form table, they were second behind Liverpool. The eight-game form table, they were second behind Liverpool. They were level on points, actually, with City. Better goal difference. Better defensive record, weirdly enough, uh, Arsenal had in the eight games before the break. So, so they weren't in a mess, but there's a lot of work to be done. And personally, yeah, we, we saw the result with, with Brentford. In the friendly, some poor goals to give away. But it's better to make those mistakes, isn't it, in a, in a game that doesn't matter. Might sharpen minds up. Look, if, if Arsenal play that way against City, they'll get destroyed, won't they? Because because Manchester City are lethal. Lethal in those positions. You can't mess around with them. So, no, it's... It, yeah, I think, I think Arsenal are capable of, of getting up to fifth. They're going to have to put together a pretty spectacular run. But but the signs have been overwhelmingly positive under Arteta. And look, for, for me, this game is just really fascinating because it's Arteta against Pep, isn't it, for the first time. And if anyone knows what Man City don't like facing, it's got to be Arteta, right? So surely he will he will have spent a long, long time, had the whole lockdown, for goodness sake, to, to sort of plot some kind of strategy of, of, of getting under Pep's skin and, and the player's. And in turn, Pep will expect that, won't he? He'll know that Arteta knows where they're weakest. And I'm sure that he might try and come up with something new, something a little bit 
difference. I think that the, the battle between Arteta and Pep is is going to be tremendously exciting if you're into that kind of thing. And, and it should be a good game. I, I don't think either defence is, is brilliant. Both teams capable of scoring goals. For Arsenal to get a result, I think I think they're going to have to defend out of their skin and and Bernd Leno might have to be the man of the match. I think I think on the last visit to the Etihad Stadium, I can't remember how many saves he made. It was almost double figures. It was yeah, he he was a very very busy man. Bernd Leno, the last time he was there, and I suspect it might be similar. I tell, I, I tell you what, Ed, like I I can't help but sort of to default Man City into that Brentford footage. And just think, oh, that's going to be a long old day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you can't mess around at the back. You, against teams like City, you, you you have to adapt. I looked at the stats, actually, and I think they've, they've lost seven games this season, City. So they're not infallible. And barring the Wolves game, where Edison got sent off very early, I think the average possession of the victors against City was 33%. I think the average shot count was about eight. So you saw, And they all scored at least twice. So basically, you, you're not going to have much of the ball if you want to beat City and you have to be extremely clinical at the other end. And as you rightly point out, you don't make you don't make silly mistakes inside your own <laughs> <Yeah>. half. <laughs> you don't you don't give away the ball and then jog after it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think how important is it, you know, looking at the other end of the pitch, Seb, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, 50 goals in 78 appearances. I think only Ian Wright's got to that level quicker for Arsenal there's been some noises off about you know uh, my next move is going to be the key to my career and you know when I when I look at that I'm thinking well who's been whispering in his ear Arsenal have got to keep him haven't they yeah also the next move is not going to be the key to his big to to his career because he's not going to get a move to the kind of club that are going to be a a vehicle for that sort of thing that moment has been and gone for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang Arsenal, he won't get a better contract than he has at Arsenal. He probably won't get a better platform because European football is pivoting younger all the time, especially with centre-forwards, especially with centre-forwards who cost a lot of money. So if I was an Arsenal fan, I'd be a little bit irritated by how public some of these comments are and this sort of, this reluctance to be fully committed because he's the club captain. He's a wonderful player. And he's he's kind of when he's in that side, it changes its dynamic entirely. They are a completely different proposition to what they would be without him. But it's sort of it, he's like someone from the outside. At least he seems to be someone that's sort of you know he he's he's fully on board until something better comes along. And that's just I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I aren't we all you know, like that though? Aren't we all? Aren't I don't we, think yeah. so, mate. I, I mean, I, well, I, I mean, in a way, maybe we are. You know, um, I'm not eyeing up other podcasts on the side. I can tell you that. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not in demand. So no, there's two ways to you, read that. You, you feel content now, but if someone was to come and say, "Look, we'll give you a gig every day of the week, and we'll, we'll double your money for each show," of course you would listen. Yeah, but. Uh, you're saying I, I that that won't happen for, for a band. No, I, I, I would. But what I wouldn't do is when we were on air to, to stretch this analogy <laughs> a little bit further, I wouldn't say to you and Mike, yeah, no. this is all right, guys. But to be honest with you, like if Calvin doesn't do a little bit better, I'm off to the, you know, the X pod, whatever. Like, you know, yeah. it's, it's I'll not... give you 25 minutes max. Yeah, and I, I want to see what you're worth if you still got well, you, it, you no, know, you that put, kind of stuff. You'd like, put it on Twitter, wouldn't you? You wouldn't say it to our faces. You'd probably put it on Twitter. But the, well, <laughs> I know what you're well, saying. I think putting on Twitter is worse. But yeah, <laughs> like, I, I don't like it. I don't, I, yeah. It's nothing about the player and the club specifically. I just don't yeah. like that behaviour. I hate it during the, in the middle mm. of a season. Yeah, I think it's incredibly yeah, he's, selfish. He's just, 
yeah, he's, he's, he's an individual, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's been thrust into the captaincy role. And I have to say that he's he's played better since he's been the captain. He's really rolled up his sleeves and, and he has led from the front. So so until I see any signs that he's turned it in, then, then, then I, you know, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I genuinely think Arsenal miraculously qualify for the Champions League. He'll stay. If they don't, he'll listen to offers. I, I just don't think anything will be sorted until uh, until that moment comes. Yeah. Now you've introduced Mammon to the conversation, Seb. <laughs> I, I, you know, let's talk about you know a couple of players who you know whose contracts are expiring at the end of this month, June the thirtieth. Uh, Joe Hart, Matty Longstaff at uh, Newcastle, who you know we led to believe has been offered a, a lot of money by uh, Udinese. Interestingly, uh, uh, Jeff Tanganga at Spurs, but I think most pertinently, Ryan Fraser at Bournemouth. It doesn't look like he's going to stay there. Do you th- you know, again, it's part of the same theme, isn't it? Do you, do you blame any of those guys for, for basically maximising the opportunity they've got now? Well, I mean, um, Longstaff, obviously not. Because he's I on think... about 800 quid a week, isn't he? Yeah, he's been off £30,000 a week. I don't, I don't understand why that contract hasn't been extended. I don't. I mean, it speaks to the level of organisation and all sorts of things at Newcastle, which... Well, that that club's paralysed. Let's yeah, just get it right. Well, I, I think it is, Mike, but I think also that's become a convenient excuse for a lot of other things. Like, you know, you there was inertia before the takeover began, you know, before those wheels began to turn. I think Jaffa Tanganga will sign his new contract, so let's, let's strike him off the list for now. No, for someone like Ryan Fraser, I, I don't blame him because you... This is, you know... Unlike the Aubameyang situation, this is the pivotal moment in his career, and also it's very difficult because I, you know, Bournemouth, Bournemouth situation is very tenuous at the moment, and it will be for a few more weeks until we know whether they're going to survive. So it, it's hard. I mean, it's some, um, it's one of those where you kind of have to put yourself in their situation. You know, do you commit yourself, or do you do you put yourself in a position where you can have a career-altering opportunity? And for someone like Fraser, who hasn't existed at the top of his game, who won't get the chance again, who someone probably, if you were a, you know, a top six, top eight Premier League team, you're not going to spend a lot of money on him. But if he's available on a free transfer, you might offer him decent wages and you might you might give him the opportunity because he's not going to walk into one of those teams as a starter. He's going to be someone who is given that opportunity as a little bit of a punt, who comes in, possibly displaces a sort of a higher profile positional rival. And then gets a chance. So I can I can absolutely see where he's yeah, coming from. I'll put him in the same camp as Lyle Taylor. If he won't play on beyond June the thirtieth, I think it's out of order. I really do. Yeah, that I agree with. Yeah, yeah I just I think you, ha- you and surely all the players should should be able to extend their contracts just just beyond beyond to the end of this season. Surely they can they can do that. If some are and others aren't willing to, I think I think that's wrong. Really. Got to be professional. And Bournemouth have, have made Ryan Fraser really. I mean, what, where was he going before before he played for Bournemouth? I, I can't even remember his, his previous club. So, so look, he's, it, they've been very good for him. And I think the least he can do is try and keep them up, not just play for a couple of weeks and then say, right, that's me done. Over to you guys because I'm going to put my feet up until the the next season when I can get my get my big move. I think you've just got to you've got to do your job. And do what you're paid to do. And, yeah, I think it's frustrating for him. Joe Hart's different. He's been ostracised. Yep. He, he can do what he can do what well. he likes. Matty Longstaff probably peeved. Like you say that, hang on, why haven't I been... Maybe behind the scenes been given a big bonus. I don't know. They should have just 
topped up his money. They should have they should have given him a, a tangible reward for what he's produced this season, even if they didn't want to negotiate a, a, a hefty long-term deal. They should have given him something to, to say, look, we appreciate what you're doing and, and the big contract is coming soon, son. They haven't done that. Don't blame him. Can you imagine that happening at any other club? Like a player, a young English midfielder, his brother's at the club too. <laughs> Can you imagine any other club? Because those those, those players are yeah. worth their weight I'll in gold. Let, I'll let you into a secret. When I, I don't think it's, it's going back so far now anyway, but when I was a promising sort of youth team player slash early reserve team player, George Graham would just, there would just be mysterious win bonuses pop into my salary each week, <laughs> each, each month. It was, it was, it was like uh, Tottenham away, one, 150 quid, you know, or, you know, Brighton, Brighton at home, one, 300 quid. It was completely arbitrary, but he would top up your money with win bonuses from the first team pot. And that was his way. And there was nothing said, no conversation. And that was his, that was his way. And he, I wasn't the only one. I'm not stupid enough to, to, to think that there were others, but, but that was his way of saying, I've got my eye on you. I, I like what you're doing. You're playing really well. You're part of it. I'm, I'm including you in part of the group here. He just, he just, there was a little bit of extra money in the players' pot, and he would give it to the players that he wanted to incentivize to, to to make it into his first team. And I mean, that kind of thing sh- surely just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, well, you got management. You got you got to look after your players and, and your big assets, not alienate them. And and in the case of Longstaff, I think he's done enough to earn. To earn that new deal, and if they've not stumped it up, then then don't blame him for going. Mm. You know, we're going to have a full preview of the weekend you know, in Thursday's edition. But there are a couple of fixtures. I just I just want to look at the the broader issues that, that arise from them. Let's start with the Mersey Derby on Sunday. It's actually being staged at Goodison Park. You know, there was some talking in the Southampton, wasn't there, of some of some stage. Yeah. Outbreak of common sense. I hope so. I, you know what I don't like about it, Mike, is that sort of you, you know, football football gets complete, conflated with normal human behaviour. So in this situation, the problem with people gathering isn't a football illness. It's not a it's not a thing that the sport encourages because as we've all seen, people do that regardless. Like people don't need an excuse to do it, even when there's a pandemic on. So yeah, and also like I, I, I just it's it's kind of I, I think we've touched on this before. But the teams that were potentially to play in neutral venues all came from roughly the same part of the country, which I don't like. It makes me feel very uneasy that we're kind of we're trusting fans of clubs who you know exist beneath Birmingham essentially to all behave themselves. But if you come from anywhere north of maybe Watford, then no, you just you know we 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 have to put special measures in place. Now I know that Liverpool are are on the verge of a title, and that is in, in itself its own challenge. But the country has had these difficulties way before that. This is not. It feels a little bit. Anytime something like this comes up, it's always it always takes me back to kind of the attitude towards football fans ahead of Italian ninety, or actually some of the things that we've seen over the weekend in London. This is not a thing that exists in football. This is a thing that exists in society, I'm afraid. And so we have to address it as such. Yeah, can I just add to this? In light of the, the protest marches that have been permitted to take place around the country, how on earth can, and, and the scenes that we've, that we've witnessed, how on earth can the police turn around and say to teams that you can't, you know, you can't play at your home stadiums for fear of, of, of a gathering? 
when it would not be on any, it wouldn't resemble anything similar to it in terms of the people, the behaviour, any, anything. So if we're going to allow these protest marches, I think we can allow teams to play at their home stadiums and just take the chance that not many people will turn up, surely. I mean, that, 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 that whole idea, I think, is an embarrassment um, to, to, the, to the chief of police there. I really do. And it's, yeah, I, I, well, it's, I'm glad it's he's backtracked. It's about treating people with respect, though, isn't it? Because people generally behave as you condition them to do so. So if you if you if you treat someone with respect, then they will conform to that. If you treat them like someone who can't be trusted, or you know, with regards to things like violence and hooliganism, hooliganism, if you treat them like animals, they'll generally behave like animals as a result. So you got to I, I don't know. Football football always gets the brunt of this. Always, 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 and it never changes. No matter no matter how the game sanitizes, no matter how how it changes and evolves over time, these old associations just continue to exist. It's conflating football with problems that we have in society and. It's it, it it frustrates me. It maddens me actually. It just um, you, you see it time and again. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the the narrative it all never changes. Well, very, you know, I I can go back thirty five years ago. I was a you know, very junior reporter on the Telegraph. Um, was one of the football correspondents called in by Margaret Thatcher to Downing Street um, immediately after the Heysel disaster, and. You know, it was very obvious what her view was uh, that football fans were second-class citizens who essentially deserved to be caged. And that was part of an old command and control structure. Now, you know, we started this pod by talking about what we'd missed about football. Uh, in that context, I want to talk about what perhaps what we've gained in, in during the lockdown. And we certainly in Marcus Rashford found a young player, 22 years old, with real moral authority to address a huge social issue of food poverty. Now, I, I, you know, his letter released overnight asking the government to reconsider their plan not to sustain the food voucher programme over the summer was, was of huge significance because, you know, we are, we've been brought up on these lazy cynical stereotypes of greedy footballers now he has shown compassion and empathy and leadership that's not around too often these days we spoke on thursday about the black lives matter process we've we spoke about racism in football we were addressing pretty serious issues here which i think is really important that we do so are we seeing here a change in the dynamics that actually footballers, because of their platform, can play a positive, proactive role in society. I hope so. I really do. This is one. It's wonderful. Marcus Rashford is a credit to his family, to Manchester United, to the country. Really, Rashford for prime minister. I say. Uh, <laughs> I tell you what. I bet he's got. A, a, he's, now I bet we're going to start voting for our footballer of the year in the Football Rights yeah. Association. I think on Wednesday. Yes. Yeah. He has got he's got more than the chance now of winning that vote. I think. Well, yeah, yeah, he's he's had a fantastic season as well. And if he if he if he hits the ground running on the pitch, and you couple it with what he's doing off the pitch, yeah, he he, he could easily land that award. It's certainly some kind of recognition might might come for him down the line. But that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because he's seeing people suffer and he wants to make a difference. And he's using his his voice, his influence, 
his social media presence to to gain traction and well done to him footballers used to you know use their time really badly as a rule you know they'd go down the pub or to the bookies or whatnot they'd waste their time and uh, but these days uh, guys like Rashford are, are using what time they have and and then then there came the era of course where, where players would use their spare time to just uh, go and film an advert for this and do the endorsement for that and and just trouser a load more cash and they still do that of course they do but isn't it nice to see footballers at the peak of their powers trying to to change things for the better yeah absolute star Marcus Rashford is at the moment and yeah, if he was to run for PM, I think he'd get in. You know. <laughs> uh, do, do you think it's it's an you know an overdue phenomenon, Seb? I think so. I mean, I, I just want to be careful not to sort of to frame it as as something that Marcus Rashford should be doing because there's no compulsion on him to do any of this. And you know, like Adrian said, it's the richer players have got, the more isolated from society they've become, and in a way that kind of that accentuates the the goodness in this deed because Marcus Rashford has never had less reason to do things like this because if he was a cynical person, he could quite easily say, well, I'll just get myself off from this. And as an instinct, who wouldn't want to do that, really, given the way things are at the moment? I think it's, I mean, I, 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 overdue, I want to stay, I, I want to avoid the word, but I, I think it's important because I, I think the more famous players become and the more famous they are at a young age, the more effective they are as role models. You know, because young people today, like you can relate to someone that's, you know, 21, 22, 23, you know, more than you can a, you know, a 35 year old who's coming to the end of his career, who's got wife and kids and responsibilities and kind of, you know, has has that sort of the, that outbreak of maturity at the normal time. For Marcus Rashford to be doing that, I think back to the way I was when I was his age and you know, the bad decisions I made and how self-interested I was, I would never do something like this, regardless of, of what privilege I've had or, you know, if I was if I was in a situation where, you know, I was earning a lot of money for, for playing professional football. It just wouldn't occur to me. And, and that's not, and that doesn't make you a bad person. It's just that Well, some, it just makes, I think yeah. it makes me an average yeah. aid. I, yeah. I think it's kind of, and that's, that's, that's the way to look at him yeah. because he's not average because exactly. this is something that he doesn't have to do that no one would criticise him for if he just stayed silent you know, and I, I, I have nothing but the highest admiration for him. I, I really, I really do. That statement's probably been greeted across the board. That one. Yeah. I suppose we look at. Yeah, you know, I'm not sort of conflating the two things, but we are, I think, in a product of a of a you know almost like a transitional era for football between, you know, what we were, we were used to you know, pre-pandemic. You know, there was I think Premier League clubs lost almost six hundred million pounds in the 2018-19 season to almost you know what we what we told to to term the new normal whatever that might be if things are changing do some of the rules or some of the attitudes that we've taken for granted do you think they'll change as well now i'm thinking specifically the second fixture that i that i spoke about on saturday the 3 p.m. fixture brighton against arsenal is on bt sport Obviously, in the in the past, that wouldn't have been allowed to be transmitted because of the TV embargo for three o'clock. Is it time to scrap that embargo? Well, I think now that it's been scrapped, albeit temporarily, I think it's hard to see it to see the television companies not wanting that 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 slot moving forward. I don't think many people would have an issue with it 
time has changed, hasn't it? Personally, and this is just just me, my own opinion is that at three pm on a Saturday, if I'm not working, I would rather follow what's going on on, on I don't know BT Sports Score, Soccer Saturday, or listen to around the grounds maybe on Talksport, and and that's how I would rather spend that two hour window than watching one specific live game because I think it's the most exciting time of the week. I really do. That that two hours is thrilling for me. And and I think for a lot of football lovers, it's it's the same, seeing the scores roll in and, and, and whatnot, hearing what's going on. That That is what I prefer. Now, that might be what we learn down the line. There may be a live game allocated at 3pm every week, and it might not get the figures that you would expect it, it to get. I certainly don't believe that it would impact on crowds. I think those those days have, have gone. People go to games if they want to go to a game, and I don't think they'll stay in just because there's a there's a Premier League game on the on the TV. I, I don't buy into that. You you know it's really interesting. October November last year, my father in law and brother in law came over from Germany, and we were sat in the living room at like three o'clock, and they both turned to me, and my father in law only speaks a little bit of English, so it was it was translated, but it was basically put the football on. And I was explaining <laughs> the blackout law. And they just looked at me with kind of open mouth horrors, like, what? <laughs> so they um yeah. they obviously and, and, and what what do we associate with the Bundesliga? What do we associate with 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 German football? High attendance, great atmosphere, you know, just great enthusiasm for the game. And yet you have the idea that like you can't I mean, I think over over in Germany they they have a kind of um a conference channel like we do for for Champions League nights on on BT Sport where you, you know there's multiple games being covered and you just flick between the between however many there are and that doesn't seem to be doing an awful lot of harm to Bundesliga attendances whether that would be different in this country because of you know how much it costs to attend football I don't know but then that's an entirely different conversation I think I don't think you can go back to arcane legislation like this because it wasn't those laws weren't created with this with this future in mind because no one foresaw that happening. No one foresaw to, uh, football being a, you know, a, a a television experience. And also, let's guys, let's be real. Like people who want to watch football at three o'clock on a Saturday find a way to do it anyway. They do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They do. Not legally, but they do. Yeah. So I mean, it's just it, it serves no purpose anymore. Yeah, I suppose when one of the original concepts was to try and protect you know, the lower league clubs. You know, we've got the EFL playoffs beginning on Thursday. The League Two first legs: uh, Colchester against Exeter, Northampton against Cheltenham. Do you think to get to that point has been a fair process? You know, I, I, I for instance, in in League One, feel desperately sorry for Tranmere. I know, I know they're talking about you know perhaps some sort of legal challenge to their relegation, but it's been a bit of a mess, isn't it, Aid? Yeah, I've been fairly vocal on this from day one. Really, I, I just feel that that the clubs, the EFL and the wider football world, i.e. the Premier League, the FA, didn't didn't try hard enough to, to get the seasons completed. Um, and it's a real shame. But look, we are where we are. And and actually, in, in League Two, I mean, you could certainly make a case for Port Vale who are on a cracking run, missing out. I, I feel feel for them. But I do feel I do think that by and large we've got the right teams in the playoffs. By, by hook or by crook. So, so look, we wish them the very best of luck, don't we? It's going to be strange because the playoff games are obviously amazing atmospheres, full houses and, 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 and great occasions. And it's going to have a very, very different feel. But, but the prize is still the same. And, and yeah, it's, it's exciting for fans of those clubs. I'm going to actually be covering the, um, 
Northampton, Cheltenham tie, uh, home and away for radio. So I'm really looking forward to to going and, and commentating on those games. And yeah, it's but but as for the process, no, I'm not I'm not a fan. But we we are where we are, and I, and I do want to see teams go up because these clubs, all four of these, have worked incredibly hard. They've sweated buckets to put themselves in a position to go up. And I think they deserve the chance to do so. Aid, who was it? Well, there was I heard reports that there was a club who, before the vote, they proposed a motion whereby the playoffs would be opened, so you could just, you know, if you wanted that, they they wanted to kind of sanction a process by which, if you fancy to go wherever <laughs> you finished in the Premier League in 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 the in the, um, in the division, then you could just stick your hand up and go, yeah, I fancy was it, a promotion. Was it Ipswich? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Was Ipswich. it Ipswich? Exactly that. Yes, oh, it was. Yeah. yeah, it's a classic, isn't it? Um, it didn't pass, it didn't by the way. Pass, that no. motion did not pass. What a no. surprise! <laughs> no, look, look the, the, the bigger issue, and I think we touched on this on a previous pod, is is the way that the EFL is structured. Moving forward, we cannot have a situation where where the participants, the seventy one, and it'll be seventy two next year, hopefully, seventy two clubs, they vote on everything. They can they can decide this process because it's this is just boiled down to money, Mike. Chairman have been asked these these fundamental questions, right? If we if we call off the season, will I still have to pay my players? No. All oh, right. Okay. Uh, will I get relegated? No. Not unless you're one of the unlucky ones. Right. Okay. That's that's an incentive. Could I get promoted? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe you could get promoted. All right. Let's let's not play on then. I mean, it it it, it all boils down to the fact that they didn't want to pay their players, and yeah, these four teams. They're coming out of furlough because they've got that shot at the ticket to the next division. Yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's, it's wrong, really. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, we're we're stoking up transfer speculation, you know, and and there's also spe- speculation about the transfer window itself, Seb. You know, there's a lot of talk now that the new window would be from August to October. Do you think that's sensible, or should we just scrap the whole thing and just go back to getting players when you want? how you want well i i yeah i i would advocate for that mike because i think also it's going to be important for people to be able to sell players when yeah, they want definitely. you know obviously there are certain financial realities that clubs are going to have to confront immediately but i think some of them are also going to have to are going to reveal themselves over time and i think it can only be fair to allow the maximum flexibility within that whether we should have a transfer window all the way through the season i look i i i hate transfer culture generally i just i hate it it's become like it's become a sport in itself with people sort of, you know, you can win the transfer window now and you can lose the transfer window. And, and I, I, I just, I, I detest the culture of improvement only being available through the transfer window and spending. And I, I think it's a nonsense. So anything that curbs that would get my vote. Whether if you, if you kept the window, if you, if you kept the transfer period open as, as of the old days, when, when did it finish? Kind of like March, didn't it? Yes. The transfer done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember you you'd follow it on CFAX. And the deals would tick in, like you know, someone someone would complete a, a free transfer between Oxford and Bury or something, and, and that would be a big deal. I probably was um, one of those back in the yeah, day. Yeah, you might be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that might be the first time we met, actually. <laughs> but I, I I also think there's a problem there with integrity, in that I don't like transfers occurring in the middle of the season because I think it creates a disadvantage. I also think it creates a huge advantage for the wealthier sides. 
because you have the opportunity yeah. I, to I think, stock yeah. up and you know but i think here because the because of the point you initially made teams need to recalibrate their finances they need a bit of time to straighten things up to do a bit of wheeling and dealing for want of a, a better phrase to get themselves straight i think you have to leave it open personally i would leave it open until the end of february you, you can't have it open the whole season because in the midst of a relegation battle or promotion battle teams can just go go you know bonkers and that wouldn't be fair but but yeah you have to draw the line i'd draw it at, at the end of feb and leave it open till then just to allow everyone in in the world to just get their house in order it's it's not a time really for for windows in my view i think also like financial health is really important aid because do you remember that scene in um sunland till i die when he when he's trying to buy will grigg for you know oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 40 million quid or whatever so you, I think you also have to protect clubs from themselves. Like if you've got a, relegate, a club facing relegation in March, April, goodness knows how bad some of those decisions would be and how much threat they would pose to a future, to a club's future. Yeah, and I suppose it all, it all points up to the fact that in this new era that we're talking about, recruitment, smart recruitment, will be absolutely key. I noticed, you know, we talk about transfers of players. I noticed last week, Paul Mitchell the former MK Dons captain who was hugely influential as head of recruitment at Southampton and Spurs, is just going to move from Red Bull to Monaco, which struck me at the time as hugely significant. Are we getting to that point, Aid, where guys like Mitch are absolutely as you know worth their weight in gold in the way in the way that a, a leading footballer would be. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, it, it is a very very important job, isn't it? Recruitment, promotions are won and lost on it, and, and titles as well to some degree. You, you you need everything in place. You need a great coach. You need a, you need the right dressing room, the right characters within it, and you, you also need someone to help put it together. And, and in the, in the modern day. Man, head coaches can't do it on their own. You need smart people with great contacts. Mitchell is one of those guys with a, with a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, these people will 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 be ever more sought after. What what surprises me is is that more that we don't see more high profile footballers going to this line of work. I just think it's uh, it's less pressurised in some degree to to day to day management it's it's fascinating you you're you're using your eye that you've used for your your football knowledge and your eye that you've built up over many many years yeah it's it's a role that that would appeal to to guys like me and to and to to many former players i would imagine but it's clearly something that's not that easy because there aren't many superstar recruiters out there are there uh, he's a name that, that that keeps popping up because he tends to have success wherever he goes for me yeah I'm, I'm a little bit surprised he's he's not working in the Premier League but but he's he's on he's on a different kind of journey isn't he certainly is so we'll wrap this particular journey up thought for the day really you know let's let's see as I say we're going into a um, almost the new season Seb what uh, what would you like to talk about it's not really related to the new season I just wanted to mention the passing of Steve Stammers over the weekend he was 71 I am um, it's a funny thing the press room you know there's there's a lot of nice people there's a lot of very dislikable people unfortunately <laughs> there's a lot of ego there's a lot of arrogance and I remember when I first um when I first sort of moved into that environment 
he was very helpful. I didn't, I can't claim to have known him very well, but that's entirely the point. He didn't know me from anyone. And um, he once, uh, I was, remember being in the press room at Swansea, cannot remember for the life of me what I was covering, but uh, he once uh, took the time to stop me from breaking an embargo. Now that's one of those little things that, you know, younger reporters don't know about. They have to be told or worse, they have to find out by, you know, making a fool of themselves or upsetting people. And he was very kind to me. He didn't know me. Wouldn't have even known my name, I wouldn't have thought. But he passed away at 71. And, um, you know, there, there aren't many people that, um, you know, since that, that news broke, an awful lot of people have shared far more extensive stories than, than I've just done. And seems there's an awful lot of pe- um, people that, that have fond memories of him. So, uh, you know, rest easy. Yeah, well said. Yeah, well said. I, yeah, I, I knew Steve for you know, 30 years probably and worked with him for a while. The great thing about Steve wasn't his jokes. His jokes were pretty <laughs> awful, if we're <laughs> honest. But that friendliness and warmth and kindness that you spoke about absolutely sums him up. And the thing about Steve was that in our trade, he 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 embodied certain aspects of our trade, which I think attracts us to it in the first place. He loved telling stories and he also loved getting stories. Now, that's actually an underrated art in today's journalism, getting stories. I mean, I was never any good at it. And for Steve to have been given so many tributes tells you, you know, actually, our trade can be a bit of a rough trade, but actually there's some good people within it. So, um, yeah, rest easy, Steve. Aid. Yeah, um, he, I had conversations with Steve as well. Really enjoyable football chat. So yeah, we 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 sorely missed. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna talk about Roy Hodgson actually. Uh, something he brought up this week. He was talking up the importance of of using the academy players, the best kids that they've got coming through at Crystal Palace with the busy schedule coming up between now and the end of the season, with obviously looming cost cutting maybe across the Premier League with, with squads being trimmed down. It, it is an opportunity, and, and obviously there are many, many bad things that have come out of this this awful crisis. It's been disastrous. It continues to be, but 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 one sort of chink of light is that I do wonder: will more kids be given an opportunity to play for their Premier League teams? At Palace, in fairness, like Hodgson hasn't really dipped in that often. Obviously, Aaron Wambasaka was one was one that came through, and they made a, a hefty profit on. Not really known for it in recent years there. But yeah, yeah, it'd be fascinating to see which clubs, which teams, which managers introduce young players between now and the end of the season. It, we, we might see a lot more fresh names come to the fore over the coming months. And that's a good thing. So, you know, as we said, just a couple of days now to wait. And as we've, as we've discussed, football's got huge social and financial issues to sort out. I suppose in such difficult times, it was good once again to hear from Arsene Wenger. You know, he's always been a touchstone of sanity and perspective and intelligent analysis. And I found myself agreeing with him yet again when he said that inequality and predictability are killing the modern game. And that got me thinking, you know, are we missing the point here where we talk about Super clubs, super leagues, super Saturday, super Sunday, super Wednesdays. Does football need to recalibrate to remember what made us fall in love with the game as kids? I think it does. What I hope is that this will be a restart in more senses than one. 
Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Thanks once again for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And now I can say it, enjoy the game. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.